Hey folks, it's time for another episode of the High Power Archery Podcast. Sorry we didn't get an episode out last week, but it was the Easter holiday. It was really, really busy. I had a lot of stuff going on. I don't even want to get into how, how crazy it was, but in any case, this this podcast is about a week late. We actually have two podcasts that are getting released within about a day of each other, uh, but this podcast is all about simple tuning methods. I've been getting a lot of different requests for podcasts on basic tuning, and now that I make companion videos for them on our YouTube channel, they want some videos on basic tuning as well. And the reason people are asking me for this is because the average person, when they go to YouTube or something like that, and they look up tuning, or if by chance they just put in tuning into into Google, will get a million different explanations of it. A lot of ass hattery, I call it out there, where you can't tell what's real, what's not. It's hard for them to tell what to actually listen to, what to pay attention to. So our style here on the podcast has always always been to make it simple, so that our students and our clients can can do stuff on their own. That's the whole purpose. I want people to become independent working on their bows, to have confidence in the fact that they know how to fix their own things and they don't have to rely on anybody else for it. So it's a teaching process. But at the same time, we try to make it simplified. So it doesn't have to be overly complicated. You don't have to buy all kinds of fancy equipment. Most of the work that you do on a bow can be done with the common things you have around the house or buying a couple of very inexpensive things from an archery supply. So we're going to get started right away as far as what do you need for simple tuning, okay? So the fact is, right now we're getting into the nicer weather and people are breaking out their bows um, that they've had stored during the wintertime. And the tuning question always comes up. Well, do I have to retune my bow? The fact is, when you've had the bow in storage or you haven't been shooting for a while, bows and strings are made of, of fibers that you... And they'll fall out of tune. Things stretch, depends on the environment it's in. All kinds of things can happen. So the idea should be for everyone, check the tune on your bow every time you take it out of storage or if you haven't been shooting for a while. Now, you can just take it out, start shooting it, and it could be completely fine. A lot of times, if it has, if it's been stored properly in the right place, not somewhere where the temperature really varies, like from extremely hot to, to extreme cold, that sort of thing, things like the fibers in your bowstrings and your cables won't get affected that much, it didn't get knocked around, something like that. But I do recommend giving it the once over and checking it out. And frankly, most people who are listening to this have never tuned a bow anyway. Because tuning, if if you start out as a new shooter, tuning is not something that is discussed all the time. Especially not when you go to the bow shop. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll set you up, whatever. And I'm not knocking bow shops. But the fact is somebody walks in. They want to buy a new bow. You set them up, set the peep height, set the draw length. You're good to go. Here's your arrows. Go for it. And that basically gets them rolling, which is what their job is. If you go to a big box store, you're probably just pulling the bow off one of those racks over there 
no one's even helping you with it, and you set it up on your own, that's great, whatever. Sometimes they have somebody there who knows what they're doing, we hope. But the word tuning never really comes up. So for the inexperienced archer, or even some people have been shooting for a long time, tuning is not something that they've really been familiar with. So we're going to try to make this simple for you. As far as what you're going to need to get started, here's a little shopping list to get and some of the stuff you already have at home. But whatever you don't have, I suggest you get. I would suggest getting a bow vise. Now, some of them are very inexpensive depending on what their features are. Do they have a 360 tilt on them? Do they have levels built into them? That sort of thing. But you can get them at Lancaster Archery or on Amazon for anywhere for anywhere from, say, $30, $35, all the way up to $400, depending on what you're doing. Get something inexpensive that you can afford. If you can't get something like that, a lot of times people already have these ball vices in the house, especially if they have like a hard, you know, a workshop at home. But if you get a ball vice like that, make sure that you put some, get a couple strips of rubber that you can buy in any hardware store and that you you stick them on the teeth of the ball vise. This way, you're not going to mar your limbs because you're going to clamp onto it by the limbs. I've actually even seen these bicycle work stands that they make where it has a clamp hanging out, and you can just clamp the middle of your bow on there, and you can get a pretty much level on there the same way. So where there's a will, there's a way. You can pretty much make anything work as far as advice for the bow. The other thing you're going to need is a tape measure. Almost everybody has them. Um, you should really order some bullet points or field points, whatever you want to use, of different weights. So let's just say your current setup is 100 grain tips. Well, order a couple of 125 grains and a couple of 150 grains. I'll get into why later, but you should have some varying sizes. You're not going to mix them up on your arrows, but there's going to be some testing that we do where you should have something like this. The other thing you want to get is some D-loop thread. Now, D-loop, you can buy in D-loop line, you can buy in foot-long lengths usually about a dollar or $2 a foot, whatever it is. You don't need to buy a whole spool. But if you want to, you won't always want to have it, get it. I suggest getting something like D-Braid or something like that, something that's like a 1.8 or a 2 millimeter. Not, not heavy stuff. You don't want anything that's too stiff. I'll explain why later. So you got your D-loop material. Get some serving thread. Now, serving thread, people always ask me, well, which serving thread do I get? It really doesn't make a difference. For, for most people's information, which they probably don't even understand, you can use dental floss if you really had to. But I suggest getting like a BCY 3D serving or a 62XS serving because they can be used for center serving. The 3D is good for tying anything. 3D is probably the most common. I'd get that. They come in a wide array of colors. Get a spool of that if you don't already have it. The other thing that is an optional that will make your life easier, you can pick up pretty much anywhere on Amazon or a bow shop, is a T-square. Get one of those. Try to avoid the ones that have like only the one side of the T. It's kind of like an H-square if you really look at it. Get a T-square. It will make your life easier for marking, marking things down on the string and tying stuff up and finding where the rest meets and all that. But, again, it's not necessary. It's just a nice-to-have. 
So the other thing you want to do is you want to go ahead and you want to research your manufacturer specs for your bow. Now, why am I saying this? For the same reason I'm saying this is very simple. I have people walking into my shop, make appointments, come down, look at their bow, and the limbs are so far wound out that if you turn them a quarter more, they will literally pop out of the bolts. You draw the bow back and literally see them explode. So each manufacturer has a limit to how many turns you can back off a limb bolt for each bow. And why there's a limit is so that it doesn't become dangerous because if you wind them out too far, the limbs can become unstable and they can pop right out of the pocket at full draw when you're drawing. All kinds of bad things can happen. So you need to find out what the manufacturer recommendation or maximum number of turns is. That can vary greatly depending on the manufacturer. I can tell you because I'm a PSE dealer and stuff like that, that most PSC bows are between 8 and 10 turns, which is a lot for the industry. I will tell you that right now. That's got a lot of flexibility. So find out what's the max number of turns you can do that. Now, if you're the type of person who shoots the bow with the, the limb bolts bottomed out, meaning completely in, not turned out at all, you've got nothing to worry about, not a big deal. But still check the manufacturer specs so that you know what the axle-to-axle should be on that bow that you have and what the brace height should be, and I'll get into why we need that later. So look up your specs, find out what it is. Next, okay? I'm going to say this because it's very, very important to performance, but if you're buying a brand-new bow, okay, or even getting a bow from somebody else, whatever, buy a bow that suits you, In other words, that you don't have to struggle when you're drawing it back. So what a lot of people will do is, well, I'm going to buy a 70-pound bow. Okay, but they can't draw it back. It's like too heavy, so they wind up unwinding it on the limb bolts, going turns back, so they can drop it down to like 60 pounds or something like that. If that's like, some of the manufacturers don't even go down that far. They don't have that big a range. Sometimes only like five or seven pounds is the range, but whatever it is. My suggestion is always to buy what you can pull. It's great to have the the outlook that I'm going to be shooting 70 pounds someday. But if you're going to pull that and wind it down, you have to understand that by winding it down to something that's not optimal, because when they say it's a 70-pound bow, that's optimal performance. When you wind it down, two things that are going to happen. One, the draw length is going to get longer because the limbs are pivoting back. A lot of people don't even realize that happens. So you buy a 28-inch bow and you wind that sucker back, say, 5, 10 turns, that 28 inches could turn to 28 and a half, even 29. So you have to be careful with that. It's an effect. If you have something like the PSE modular systems, most manufacturers have gone to that so you can change draw lengths within some reason. It's not that big a deal. But if you're at the bottom of the draw length range and you do that just to lower the poundage on the bow, 
you might be surprised that your draw length is too long all of a sudden. So keep that in mind. But the bows are designed to work bottomed out for optimum performance. And actually, there's even some draw lengths. So let's just say a draw length on a particular bow is from 26 to 31. The optimal, like, happiest place that that bow may want to operate might be 29. It might be 28. 31, it's like the max on it. The max on it. Well, if 31 is the max, it's going to give you the most speed because it's got the most wind on the cam. But the bow, performance-wise, might be like best for something in the middle, something like in the 29, 30-inch range. When you buy a PSD bow, they all come set for 29 because I think when they set them up, that's what they are set for optimal performance. Anywho, so once you know your manufacturer specs, you're basically ready to, to get started. Okay. You already know how many how many turns you can go back safely on your bow and all that. You're good to go. So what are we going to start with? Well, the first thing you're going to do is recall record all the existing settings on your bow. So why am I saying this? Well, because if something is not right or you change something and it starts performing adversely bad, you want to know how to put it back and where to put it back to. Because if you recorded the settings and you can't even figure out how to take put it back in there, you can actually bring that to the shop like here. This is what it was before I started fritzing around with this thing and I couldn't get it back to where it was. And they can act, most boat technicians, if you give them that, they'll figure out how to get it back. It's not a big deal. But for your own personal edification, you should really record those things. Keep them on a piece of paper and always have them in your wallet or in your bow case somewhere where you can reference them, okay? What settings are we going to record? One, record the brace height, which is the distance from the deepest part of the handle to the string, okay? That's your brace height. You want to record that. The draw length, unless you have a draw board, is going to be hard for you to record. You can have somebody stand there and you know, measure it out for you. But for the most part, it really doesn't matter because you're not going to change that. You also want to record the axle to axle length. So measure from the center of the top axle to the center of the bottom axle. Get all that written down. So the reason I said get the manufacturer specs for the bow is because if you have a, let's just say, Throw a random number out there. Uh, a 33-inch axle-to-axle bow. It's supposed to be 33 inches axle-to-axle and maybe 7 inches in brace height or something. And you measure your bow. And suddenly, instead of being 33, it's like 33 and a half, 33 three and three quarters. The brace height is all of a sudden shorter. Something's wrong. Now, either the strings have elongated strings don't stretch stretching implies that they're going to contract back again they don't do that something's elongated something else is wrong whatever you got to get it back in spec so getting it back in spec if you have it that big a deal where it's off something's going on you might have to take it to a bow shop 
But before you go ahead and start running out there, remember one thing that I said before. If you wound the bow back, it typically throws those axle-to-axle numbers and brace height numbers completely off. So when they give you an axle-to-axle length, it's generally if the bow is bottomed out. Just keep that in mind. Okay, so now you've recorded all your settings. We have a starting point. So where do we start tuning this bow? What do we start doing? And if you've never tuned a bow before, try to use this as a roadmap for what you should do. You don't have to do it exactly according to this or every single time, but I'm going to basically line it up in simple terms for what we're looking for. So the first thing we're going to look at is, and this is where you should have a vice if you can, and the other thing I left out of that stuff to have that's good to have is an arrow level. You can, you know, a, a set of levels for the string and for the arrow. You can buy those on Amazon for like 10 bucks. Anyway, so if you got the vice, put the bow on the vice and level up the string. Put the level on there. You can also use a regular level to do that with. Um, a long construction level. If you put it against the string, you can actually see if it's level. You can actually level it the other way to make sure it's not crooked. But the string levels make it easier. Then you just go ahead and you put the arrow on the string. Okay. Set it in the rest. And you're going to level the arrow on the string. Now, very important to pay attention to is where it's going to be running through the burger hole. So the burger hole is the hole that in back in the old days we used to put our cushion plungers in there and that sort of thing. And then on a recurve, they still do it. But for purposes of compound, which is what this is about for tuning, that's where the rest usually gets screwed in. Okay? So even before you start setting, like, the arrow rest height and all that, check the arrow rest itself. With the bow riser completely leveled out, string leveled out, look at the arrow rest. Drop a little torpedo level on top of, on top of where it mounts to your bow. Check it to see if that thing's level. You'd be surprised how many times I've actually seen people put them on their cockeyed and crooked and then wonder why they don't have a lot of adjustment range for the rest itself. So I always start by putting it and making sure it's level in there when it's screwed in. Now, like I said, where it needs to go as far as where you're running it through that burger hole. You want it to be right through the middle of the bow. That's a good starting point for where it should be. Depending on what kind of bow it is, who the manufacturer is, we used to put that in there, and certain bows like Hoyt's like it to run with the bottom of the arrow through the middle of the burger hole, but that's not for all Hoyt's. It actually depends on the cam system, how it's running. Some PSEs run it high as well other ones run it a little bit lower like i said we're doing this simple run it right through the middle so the center of the arrow is running right through the middle of the burger hole going across and you level your your arrow with it to the string boom so you've established your scent your not your center shot just yet but you've established where that arrow is going to be on the plane through through the through the bow as it passes now, some people, some people will tell you 
oh, well, okay, now we got to set the center shot. We're going to do it at 13th, 16th, or something like that. But before you can even do that, you got to tie in your knocking points. Okay? I suggest one on the top and one on the bottom. Why? Because here's the thing. If your D-loop wears out or something like that, you do not, do not want to be futzing around with that and playing around trying to figure out where it was before. So if you have a T-square, you can mark out where your where your arrow is sitting and mark it on the T-square so you can just drop a T-square on there again and always put it back in the same place. Yeah, but if you need to replace it and you don't have the T-square with you, what are you going to do? The other reason I put them on there is if you have the two two knocks, I call them soft knocks, one above and one below, it'll keep your spot all the time and you can just take a D-loop off, put another one on there and not have to worry about readjusting the height where it was because that hasn't changed. But, but, here's the big but with this. Let's just say you're shooting a very short axle-to-axle bow. There is such a thing called knock pinch, and it can happen on any length of bow. I don't care what anyone says. And that will affect your performance on a scale you cannot imagine. So, to prevent knock pinch, we set up a soft knot on the top and a soft knot on the bottom and give it enough room so that when you go to full draw and that string angle gets very, very acute, it doesn't squeeze the knockout. Because if it doesn't there, if it doesn't, and you have that in there really, really tight, as you get to full draw and that little triangle gets really, really narrow, it can squeeze your, your knock almost off the string. That can result in a dry fire. So we put in the soft knots so that that doesn't happen. And it doesn't have to be much, but I will tell you this. The more acute that string angle is, because on something like a 30-inch bow or a 28 axle-to-axle bow, you got to give it a lot more room in there. So on something where it's a very, very, very acute angle like that, like on, on a 28-inch bow or a 30-inch bow, I like to give it, you know, a couple little millimeters above and below. I mean, one or two above and below, give it enough room. And you can actually test it later on when you draw it back without a point on the arrow. If it lifts off, you got pinch, you got to redo it. But the longer the, the bow is, axle to axle, the less of a problem it is. So some people tell me, well, what do I need the soft knots for if I'm shooting a 37-inch bow or a 40-inch bow if it's a target bow? Well, simple, because D-loops move. If they're not tied properly or something else is going on with them, the D-loop can actually start moving and pinching the arrow. So we have the soft knots in there, not only to reference where your your arrow should be, but also to prevent it from the D-loop from squeezing it out and creating the same, same knock pinch. So you tie that with your BCY 3D or something like that. I usually like to go three... Three double knots, one in the front, one in the back. Three times up and up on there, so three three loops, front and back. Three loops, front and back on the bottom. Make it even. Some people will tell you, well, you should only have two on the top and four on the bottom. There's lots of different ways to do this. 
Some of them are really for target shooters so they can adjust where their hand is behind the arrow and all that. doesn't make a difference. It's criticality that you don't have to be concerned with. We're trying to just get you a base tune. So tie in your soft knots. Check the arrow level. Get the arrow level running right through the burger button. Like we said. Um, now we're going to talk about the center shot. So everywhere on the internet and on YouTube, you're going to hear, well, the center shot is 13 sixteenths. Okay. And for most manufacturers, if you look up what their specs is, they're going to say that. Well, if you measure to the center of your arrow, 13 sixteenths, that's probably what your manufacturer's spec is. Here's what's going to blow that up. If the bow has ever been worked on and they moved the shims on the cam, like they shimmed it over to the left or to the right, 13 sixteenths is right out the window. Why? Because you're working on a straight line, okay? So the straight line goes from the arrow getting pushed straight by the string through the riser. If you move your shims to shim the cam over one way or the other, let's just say it started out at 13 sixteenths. Move it to the right, you just change that because now you move the string and the cam over. Move it to the left, you change that. So it can be longer or shorter, more or less. So if you insist on putting a 13 sixteenths and someone shimmed that bow, when they were tuning it for you or setting it up for you because you were getting weird paper tears, and I'll get into that in a second, then that throws all that out of the window. So how I tell people to measure this is two points. So you look at where it crosses through the burger button, okay? Measure from the front of the riser on that same, that same wall where the burger button hole is. From the front of the riser to the center of the arrow, and the back of the riser to the center of the arrow. So the plate that's there, you're going from the front of it to the, to the center of the arrow, and the back side of the plate, same thing. Those two numbers should be equal. That means that the arrow is going straight through. If you tried to put that on 13 16 or something like that, and the cam was shimmed, You'll never get that 13 sixteenths equal on both sides. That's why when I see people say, well, just measure 13 sixteenths, I'm like, yeah, it's fine if you want to measure that out in the front and the back. But if you're just doing it in the center, you're going to get a weird number. So front and back, measure it. That should be the same. So if your, your cams were shimmed at one time or whatever, whatever the number is, if it's the same, you're coming straight down the string now. Isn't that a revelation for somebody? Like, that a number doesn't make a difference. Just make sure that the number that you get on the front is the same number on the back. Then you have the arrow going through equally. I'll explain that again. Measure it to the center of the arrow from behind the burger button and from in front of the burger button. Two points. If they're equidistant, then you don't have a problem. There is your established center shot. Same way. You want to find out if your arrow is going straight through the burger button levelly? Sure. Put it on put it on the string. Measure from the, the the riser shelf to the bottom of the arrow in the front. How much is it? To the bottom of the arrow on the back. Guess what? If it's going straight through, they're, they're exactly the same. If it's not, one's going to be more than the other. 
If it's too low, like if the knock is going to be high, your rear number is going to be higher than the front number. If the knock is too low, it's going to be the other way around. Remember, I'm trying to make this as simple as possible for you. And I'll show this on the companion video, which I should have out tomorrow. But that's how you measure it to make it simple. Because you can do it that way if you didn't even have an arrow level. Like I was saying, that $10 kit you can buy with an arrow and string level, if you didn't have it, well, you leveled out your string with a construction level. You know that's level. Boom. Put it in there. Measure those two things. Tie in your knots. Done. Same thing with the D-loop. Tie in your D-loop. Here's the thing. I keep telling people for your D-loops, making sure that you're using a material that is not overly stiff. If you hate yourself and you want to have problems with shooting erratically, get a really thick and stiff D-loop material because what it does is it causes the string to torque because it it won't fold. It won't really twist very well. So instead of, since it's not pliable, it's going to make your string twist instead. That's why they used to make these gator jaws that that would actually clip onto the string the same way in place of a D-loop, but they were made out of metal. Concept sounds sound, right? No, because you twist those suckers, guess what? String torque. Or worse, gets hung up on the release if you got if you got a caliper release. You don't need that. Simplify it. Tie your D-loop. Million and one videos out there how to tie a D-loop. I'll put one together eventually, but there's so many different ways to tie a D-loop out there. You don't need me to explain how to do that. Tie your D-loop on with a flexible D-loop material. That's why I said 1.8, 2 millimeter, D-braid, you're good to go. It's soft and pliable enough. Some of the stuff I've seen out there is just horrible. But get that, tie in a D-loop, make sure of two things. One, that you have enough room for whatever type of release you have to clip on there without hitting the back of the knock. So some people say, oh, I have this tiny little D-loop. I'm like, yeah, good luck trying to shoot a release with a big head on that. A, it's not going to clamp on very easily. And two, when it does get on there, it's probably going to push your knock out of the way or give you some kind of problems and result in problems in flight. Make your D-loop big enough so that it's comfortable for you. Make sure that your D-loop, and and this is the whole purpose of what a D-loop's for, and I get questions about it like, oh, can I use my D-loop to increase my draw length? No, you cannot. The purpose of a D-loop is to, one, get the jaws of the release off the bowstring for a cleaner release. Years ago, we used to shoot directly from the string. But the other thing it does is your draw length is your draw length. Okay, If you're a 28.5-inch draw, that's what you are, assuming that you ever properly measured, and don't even get me started on that one. But let's just say your draw length is your draw length. The loop is meant so that you can actually get your arm into the right position. So you can have the right draw length when you're at full draw, which ends at like the corner of your mouth or something like that. But let's just say the segments of your shoulder or something like that don't let you come back all the way. Well you increase the length of the D-loop. It's not going to move your hand further back. It'll move it further back slightly with the release, 
but the only purpose of it is so that you can get your elbow in line. And when I'm working with my girls and and other students and customers that I have, sometimes I'll spend an hour, if they're really, really particular, want to get a good feel on the bow, I'll spend an hour trying different D-loop lengths. I had one guy came in, his D-loop barely let the jaws of his release get on there. When I was done with him, he had a three-quarter inch D-loop. Why? Because not only could he get his release in there better, he could actually get his elbow in line with the arrow all of a sudden. If you got this chicken wing thing going on where it's not in line with the arrow, you're asking for problems. That's the whole purpose of customizing the length of the D-loop. So buy a couple of lengths of D-loop. Like I said, buy like two or three one-foot pieces. You can adjust it and get to know what it is. But I've seen people make like four-inch D-loops. I'm like, why? It just doesn't make any kind of sense. I mean, it's one thing to adjust it for your elbow and all that, but ain't nobody need four inches on there. So that's the whole purpose of putting in the D-loop and playing around with it for comfort, but it's not going to increase your draw length. So as long as your D-loop's set right, you've now got everything set up Set up with that, so you've got the, the D-loop tied on, the arrows, center is on there. You've done your center shot. Your, set, your, your rest center shot is set, like I said. You measured it up and down. You measured it left and right. You're pretty much good to go. Now, what I want to look at something, okay? If you're shooting, let's look at your rest. And this is why sometimes keep it simple, stupid, and people who make fun of folks that shoot, you know, brush style rests they they don't like them like they oh that just looks too too simple like okay fine um the thing is that there's less for something to go wrong so if you're using a whisker biscuit don't let anybody tell you different yeah it might slow down the bow a little bit once that thing's set on there, ain't nothing going to happen. You keep an eye on the brushes to make sure they're not wearing out. Um, if you see that the whiskers are worn out in there and the, the, the arrows kind of like porpoising or rattling around inside the hole, because believe it or not, they do make whisker biscuits for different diameter arrows, then you just got to change the biscuit. They're very inexpensive. You just change the whole rest if you really wanted to. But most people these days are using drop away rests, whether they be cable activated or limb activated. Don't make a difference. Here's what they miss about that whole thing. When you set up your bow, the timing has got to be correct on those. So some of the manufacturers, when they put these rests out there, they tell you, well, do this, draw the bow back, and that's going to set the rest for, for the timing and all that. Like, yeah, no. Simple test. Tie on your rest. Okay? And this is like, we'll start with limb-activated rests. You got to tie to the limb. Great. That means that the the arrow rest is always down. And when you draw it back, it's going to come up. Okay. If that rest comes up immediately, there's a problem. Reason why, and it's more apparent on these, because imagine how fast it's gonna it's gonna come up. Well, the reverse is is exactly true when you fire it. 
See, we want the, the bow to support the arrow, so the rest supports the arrow as it tracks out for a given amount of time. What happens, though, is with bad rest timing, that rest stays up too long. If it stays up too long, then you might have fletching clearance issues where the fletching actually hits the rest on the way out. You might think there's something wrong on the tune of the bow when it's really just a rest. So you have to make sure that you have clearance on that thing and when it comes up. If, all right, now, the most common rest you can see out there is like these QAD rests. I don't like them as a rest company. I really don't. I have a lot of problems with their rests. It's just a personal preference of mine. Use any other brand other than that because they break down a lot. Their newest stuff, probably great and all that. I've just shied away from them for years. However, when I see a problem with rest timing, it's usually on one of those. Um, so let's just say you set it down with the gate down because they have like this auto up and auto down. Set it with the gate down. If the minute that that thing you draw back, you're not even in half draw, that sucker comes up. Well, then it's going to go down at the last minute. You're probably going to hit it with your fletching. So you've got to adjust the cord so that it comes up with about five or six inches of the arrow left. So if you're drawing back, you should be getting to three-quarter draw before that sucker comes up. Because This way, it'll support the arrow for like the first four or five inches of the arrow as it flies through. And then by then, the arrow's already got enough speed. Boom, it drops down, gets out of the way. Very easy to adjust on these things. But you need to look at it as you're drawing it back or put it on a draw board and watch the timing. The amount of improvement I see with people when we just change their rest timing is unreal. So you got to watch your rest timing. That's one. If you have a limb-activated rest or something like that, they're all tied in near the corner of the limb. And they're harder to adjust because the cord is, whatever the cord length, and you need to be taut in order. So it's got to be stiff, that 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 uh, that limb cord that's connected to your limb so that it lifts it up and all that. But the timing is not easy to do. Well, if you read their manuals, there's usually springs you can adjust on there so it adjusts the tension and how long it's going to come up and all that. Each manufacturer is different. Read the instructions. You'll figure it out. For the most part, limb-driven rests, I never have a problem with. The timing out of the box usually works sufficiently. If you want to nitpick stuff and all, yeah, you can adjust the, the tension on the on the springs and all that to make it go down sooner or, or later. Really, it's pretty simple. But for the most part, out of the box, they're fine. It's the cable-driven rest you have to be very, very careful with. So check your cable your, your timing of your rest. See where you're at. Okay. Now we arrive at the step. Paper tuning. You don't need this big paper tuning rig or something like that to do it with. All you really need is a supported piece of paper so you can take a cardboard box, cut out the hole on it, put paper on there, put it at shoulder length, shoulder height, should I say. And you can shoot right through there to get your paper tears. As long as the paper is stiff enough, being held there by tape, that it doesn't whap around, you know, flapping in the air when you're shooting through it. So you tape it on top, tape it on the bottom. And you just shoot right through that box into the target. 
make sure that the target is sufficiently away from the box so that if it's too close to too close to the target, your arrow may kick back something like it hits the target, it doesn't go all the way through the paper, and you get a false tear. But beyond that, here's where people drive me batty. When you paper tune at a shop, a lot of these guys put you at five, six feet away from the paper. Okay. And they can tune to get a bullet hole there. But if you ever check your rest to see where it is on center shot after they did that, a lot of times it'll look wacky. And when you look at your arrow, it might be pointing really to the left or really to the right. And they'll say, no, that's what you need to get a center, uh, a bullet hole in the paper. Okay. Want to know what the problem is with that? I've said it a hundred times. Arrow paradox. So if you wind up with shooting something five feet away, most arrows don't have time to correct themselves on the way out of the bow in that five feet. It just is, most of the cases, not possible. For those of you who don't know what arrow paradox is, if you look at slow motion recording of an arrow in flight, when it leaves and the string is pushing the arrow from the back, that arrow will bend and serpentine around and then straighten itself out. Well, we find that most of the time straightening itself out is anywhere from 10 feet to 15 feet, 20 feet at a minimum. I paper tune at 11 yards at a minimum. 15 if we can, if we have the distance. Why? Because I'm paper tuning to see it when it gets out of paradox to make sure. If I paper tune when it's still in paradox, my tears are all irrelevant. Yeah, I can twist your rest and, and move the, the, the center shot all the way in and all that and get a bullet hole in there, but try looking to see what it, what it does when you put that same arrow with the weird cockiness that they just put into that rest, making it all cockeyed to one side or another to guarantee a bullet hole at five feet. Go ahead, put that same piece of paper at uh, 10 feet, 15 feet, three, five yards, whatever. I don't care. 10 yards. Tell me what that arrow is doing at that point. I can tell you it won't be a bullet hole. So unless you got a magic arrow that has no paradox, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to be the same. Give it enough time to clear and do what it's got to do and then see what the true trail of it looks like. I'm not going to get too much into, well, if it's doing this, it's doing that. I'm going to explain to you what you're going to look for. Okay, If you've set the center shot the way I explained, most of the time there's nothing to change. However, your grip has a lot to do with what that bow does. So sometimes if your grip is really, really weird, or you're torquing the bow on the way out, what will happen? You'll get a strange tear. There's left tears, right tears, high tears, low tears. Okay? Now, I can put the bow on a shooting machine and get it to drill bullet holes through 15 yards. doesn't make a difference. A human being is not a machine. So if your form is hokey, and you tend to torque, 
you could wind up with problems and false tears when it's really just you. So, like, I get a lot of people come in, and especially hunters, it happens with them. I'm like, okay, fine. The bow is set up for you. I already did the work for them. And then they wonder why I've got to tune it to them. I've got to make some little changes. Sometimes we do have to move the, the shims over because someone's got such a drastic torque on their hand. But I'll go there and I'll shoot a bull hole right, th- right through the paper at 10 yards. This guy will pick it up. he have a nasty left hair. And I'll prove to him, listen, it's not the bow, because I'll put it on a shooting machine it does the same thing with no influence on it. But it's your hand and your grip and all that. And sometimes they can't change their grip enough because they're, they're stuck in their ways or they've been doing it so long or the size of their hand doesn't permit it, whatever it is. And we have to shim over. Not a big deal. What you don't do is move your center shot for that. You want the bow putting all the force from the string directly down the center of the arrow. You can make minor adjustments on it. You can actually move your cable guard in or out to affect it, okay? Because you can make changes with the cable guards. Some of them don't have adjustable cable guards. If you have yokes in the bow, when you're at full draw, someone should look at, at you from behind and look at your cam. Is your cam leaning one way or the other? Well, if it's leaning, then you probably are inducing that torque that's coming out from the string, and it's not you. And then you can yoke tune that out. But again, we're not getting into that because this is simple tuning for people. But I want you to note in your head, when you draw back, have someone look up, is that cam straight up and down? If it's not, take it to a shop and have them help you with that. With simple a couple twists, if you don't have a bow press, they can do it, and it'll get it straight. Okay? Remember what paper tuning is. Paper tuning is basically the same thing as bore sighting a rifle. It's going to give us a starting point. Okay? So we're trying to eliminate any of the weirdness that's in there that physically on the bow, something is wrong. So now, as far as paper tuning the tears and stuff like that, some tears are produced, we're talking left and right, because of the spine of the arrow. Is the arrow too weak for the amount of poundage you're shooting? Is it too stiff for the amount of poundage you're shooting? Too stiff is never that big a deal. Because if it's pushing it straight, it'll tend to go straight. But it can happen. Too weak is a big deal. Now, if you're getting these tears and all that, here's where those different weight points come into play. Try a different different weight point. If you're shooting hundreds, throw on the 125. See if you get the same tear. If you get the same tear, unlikely... But let's just say that tear cleans up. I'll give you a perfect example. You're shooting a 400 spine arrow through there with a 100 grain point, okay? And you you wind up getting a you know a severe severe tear one way or the other, okay? So if you're getting a a left tear, that usually indicates a weak arrow. Okay, left hair, weak arrow. So if that's happening, try a lighter point. See, shoot it again. You get a bullet hole, the weak, then it's the arrow. But shooting a lighter point will allow you to get perfect flight through there 
without having changed anything else. In this case, we're tuning the arrow to the bow. Same way, if you're getting a, a right, si- right side tear, you have too stiff an arrow, putting on a heavier point, shoot it again. If it gets a bullet hole, then you just got to use a heavier point in the setup. If you're going to cut arrows and stuff like that, if you have a weak one, you can start shorting in all that, but there's no need to do all that. You can actually tune the, the arrow just by changing the points. So when we say left tear, right tear, what do we mean? Tears are based on how the arrow is flying. So if you look at the arrow flying, and it's flying with the left side out, you're going to get a left tear as it enters the paper, and the fletching is going to make, you get a bullet hole going in, and the fletching and the rear of the arrow is going to tear the paper on the left side. So if you look at it, if you were to picture it in flight, that arrow is not flying straight, it's flying crooked with its tail out to the left. Could be flying crooked with tail out to the right. And there's different things. We we can judge it whether it's a weak or a stiff spine by trying the different tests with the different grain points. Okay? Some people immediately start going to, oh, let's just move the rest, move the rest. You can move the rest a hair or two, but I just don't do it for the paper tuning. I'll find out what shoots the best based on their weight. Boom, we get something close to a bull hole, if not a bullet hole. Okay, Remember what I said, bull holes are just the starting point. So as long as I'm not getting a wicked tear there, I'm okay. I've got people who set up target bows, and no matter what you do, you can't get this tear out of there. You can shoot a 300 game and all that, but that tear doesn't come out. Guess what? That bow happens to tear like that at 20 yards. And as long as you're repeatable, the bow will be repeatable. repeatable who cares? What we're talking about with this is, I want to make sure that my flight is clean if I'm shooting more than 20 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards, whatever it is, because the more off that is as it flies out, meaning that the string is not pushing the arrow evenly, the more amplified that's going to be downrange. So that's left and right tear. Okay. As far as up and down, so if you get a high tear, that means the arrow is flying out of the bow with the nose down and the tail up. That's that's what they call a high tear. The opposite is a low tear. It's flying with the point up and the tail down. So when you're going to make an adjustment for this, okay, you probably won't have this issue because we told you, remember, measure from the the shelf up to to the bottom of the arrow in the front and in the back. If it's the same, chances are you're not going to have a problem with this. If it's if that's perfect and you're still getting a weird knock high, that's usually from one of two things. That's arrow rest contact or cam timing. If it's cam timing and it's not if there's nothing contacting the rest, which you can spray stuff on there and see if it's contacting, whatever. But if it's actually cam timing, then you need to have that corrected so that at least, get to, at least we get the cams to time even, and you can either do that on a bow press yourself or take it to a shop and let them do that for you. If you don't have a bow press and you're not used to using one, let the shop do it for you. Get your even timing. 
Because the rest of this part is going to be easy. Getting to this point now, once you're past it, the paper tuning and stuff like that, from here, it gets a lot easier to do what you're going to do. We've just established that the bow is now shooting straight with no undue influence on the arrow. So the arrow is coming straight out of the bow and going straight. Now we want to get into feel on the bow. So I don't know if you've ever seen. So we start off with even timing. So both cams should be hitting the string, both stops, hit the, hit hit their cable at the same time. We call that even timing. And that's your starting point. And if you did everything right, like I said, your, me- your measurements are all good. You're pulling back, both cams are timed. That's where you're going to be. Some manufacturers have timing marks on the cams where you can look where the cable is and you can actually tell if it's in time or not. Otherwise, just you know, have one of your buddies stand there and as you pull it back slowly, 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 they can tell if the top cam is hitting at the same time as the bottom cam. All right. So remember what I said. This is At this point now, we're getting into feel to make it comfortable for you. So sometimes when you draw it back, if you feel like the bow wants to take off on you, I guarantee you have a timing problem. One of the cams is hitting first. You're pulling back, and the reason why it wants to take off on you because you're actually forcing the other cam that's ahead on timing to really, really push in that cable. It's going to push back on you and make it feel like it wants to rip it out of your hand. But, again, what you want to do now at this point is see what feels better for you. So if you're at even, right, and you're looking and you're aiming, see how it feels. See if it's jumpy or something like that. If it's a little jumpy, try taking a turn. Again, remember how many turns you have on your limb bolts. If you've got the space, take a turn out of the top cam, go at the top limb bolt, draw back, Does it feel nice? Does it feel like it's more steady? No. Put that turn back in. Do the same thing on the bottom. Take a turn out. Draw it back. Somewhere there's a middle ground where it's going to feel better. Because the fact is, the way a bow is set up these days, the center is not always in the center. So one cam has to do a little bit more work than the other for them to be even. So this is like kind of a cheat that we do so that if you get a little sloppy on the shot, um, you know, it's called creep tuning we do this for. You get a little sloppy on the shot, it'll, you know, and if you're letting down a little bit, then you won't miss. Like it increases your odds of hitting hitting the exact X every single time because we're taking into account that some people break down. And it can be done on one or the other. Once you've done that, custom, some people don't, doesn't make a difference to do that to the top, to do that to the bottom. won't make a difference. They, they like the way it feels. Okay, fine. But I'm telling you, if you've never done this before, try it. I think you'll be surprised how all of a sudden the bow holds in one position as opposed to the other. Now, you can do this on your own, okay? If you're completely wound out, that doesn't mean it can't be done to get a more comfortable feel. But it needs to be done by twisting and untwisting the cables to make the same effect. See, because when we're doing that with the limb bolts, we're either advancing or retarding the timing on the cam. Well, when you shorten or lengthen the cables by taking twists or adding twists, 
does the same exact thing. It's just that I just told you how to do this without having a press. But again, make sure you've got enough terms, turns left on it. That's why I shoot all, all the bows. I say just buy them for the poundage you want so you can have them all the way wound down. Gives you that flexibility to try it. Now, at this point, your base tune is almost done. You've done your paper tune. You set it so that the bow feels right as far as that. And if you want to, if you find a, a position where that's really, really good, break out your tape measure and measure on, go through the top limbs, measure where the limb comes out of the pocket from that space, that exact corner to the string. Okay, that's called your top tiller measurement. We used to measure this on compound bows in the old days. People, for some reason, do not check their tiller on there, and if you're going to have a timing problem, you can see it automatically on the tiller. Measure the top tiller, measure the bottom tiller. Same thing on the bottom limbs. If you ever change the strings on your bow or something like that, you can have that noted down like here. My top tiller needs to be this at this poundage and this at that poundage on the top and the bottom. And you can instantly get that feel back without any kind of experimenting. So take your tiller measurements. Okay. At this point, like I said, your base tune is done. And now if you just want to get a little bit more into it, like to make sure everything's fine, you can do bare shaft tuning. You can do some walk back tuning. Walk back tuning, all that is, is you're going to go ahead you're going to shoot it at the target at five yards, okay? You're going to move the target to 10 yards and shoot at the same exact spot. Do not aim higher or anything like that using the same pin. Shoot it. If it falls left or right, you can make adjustments for that. That means that your rest is off by a hair, just by a hair. It's not for major adjustments. It's just off by a hair. So if they're falling to the left, okay, that means that your arrow is slightly pointed to the right. Oh, so if they're falling to the left, your 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 arrow is pointed to the left. So launching out is pointing to the left. How do you fix that? Well, if you look at it from the back of, remember, the string is the one constant that can't be moved. But the rest can. So if I'm hitting to the left, that means I've got to move my rest to the right to correct that. Okay? Move it. I mean, a hair. Move it a hair. Reset. Come back again to the starting distance. Five yards, whatever it is. And recite in. This is the step everyone forgets. Recite in. Now you're sighted at 5 yards, walk back out to 10. Shoot it at 10 or 20, whatever you want. It should, and shooting at the same target, not higher or lower, the arrows should be dropping in a straight line down under the center. That means that you're adjusted for left and right. Now, as you go further and further and further, minute adjustments may be needed to keep you going, dropping down that center line. That's why you always shoot at the same spot on the target, but you don't move it up or down because what you're looking for is if I'm shooting that target at five yards, 
and I'm right on the bullseye. And I move that sucker out to 30 yards, and I drop to the left. I make an adjustment. I recite in, shoot it at five yards again. I'm in the center, shoot it 30 yards. I'm not going to hit the center. I'm going to go ahead and drop directly below the center because, again, I'm using the same pin, just one pin. Drop it out to 50. Maybe they're a little bit off. Bring it back to the five yards. Make that little correction if you have to. Recite in. Again, shoot it at five. Shoot it at 30. Shoot it at 50. It should bring it right in. It's very easy to overcorrect as well. Also remember, your form, one, don't do this on a windy day, and that your form could actually suffer if you're not careful on this, and you could shank one or two of them that way. That's why I always say, Walk back tune, do it with like two or three arrows, see where the group goes. If you get one flyer out of there, it's a different deal. That's you. But if you're grouping them tight at 20 and you group them semi-tight at 50, it's easy to see little rest adjustments. And that's all you need to do for your base tuning. Okay, now if you're going to tune for broadheads and stuff like that, there's other things that you can do that you have to do with the bear shaft and stuff like that. I'm not getting into that for this base tuning. Again, this is a simplified tuning. You set your rest. You set your center shot. You paper tuned it out to 10 yards. Even 10 feet is, makes me happier than 5 feet. Start with the bullet hole. You make little corrections as needed. If you didn't get a bullet hole at 10 feet... You were able to tell if the arrow is too stiff or too weak by changing your points and keep shooting with those points. But did you have to change your arrow length or anything like that? No. You just make the solution out of what you have. In that case, I'm tuning the arrow to the bow. The other thing is, and the last thing I'll mention about this base tuning stuff, at 30 yards, let's just say that's my reference yardage I, I'm going to use for this. If at 30 yards, your group is okay, fine. You could try it. Like if you're not bot- if you're bottomed out, try taking a twist out of the bottom limb and the top limbs equally. Shoot, did the group get bigger or smaller? If it didn't change, knock it down again, you know, bottom out. Let's just say it did. And it got tighter. Well, it just means the arrow spine of that particular given arrow just needs a little less poundage behind it, and you get a better group. But those are minute changes you can make to see what it is without going crazy with stuff. So I hope this has been helpful because, like I said, I try to do a very, very basic explanation of this. And I'm going to do this in a YouTube video where I'm going to show you what to, what to look at, what to, what to set, and all that on there. We won't do the outside shooting with with the walkback tune, but I'll show you what I'm talking about, try to illustrate what I'm talking about, the walkback tune. But this is all very simple stuff that you don't have to be a genius to do or an expert who's been working on bows for 25 years to do. You have the ability to do this on your own to make things work for you. So that'll do it for the simple tuning methods. And now we're going to move on to the listener call, uh, the listener questions. 
And the first one comes from Ron C. from Denver, Colorado, and he writes, Hey, Angel, been listening for a while, and it's great to finally put a face to the voice on the YouTube channel. I had an issue with my bare carnage for the past few months. No matter what I do, the paper tune comes up knock high. I checked arrow level, and it's fine. The guys in the shop can't figure it out. What do you suggest? They start saying it's possible the limbs are going bad because it's an old bow, and I should buy something new. Doesn't that sound familiar? Any advice you have would be greatly appreciated. Okay, so I did email Ron back. I asked a couple of questions. I don't like the fact that the guys in the shop saying your limbs are going bad or something like that. I asked him to check a couple of things for me. And he wasn't getting rest contact. We had him spray powder on his rest and shoot, and that drop away had no tracks of arrows or fletching going through there. So it wasn't that. But I said, did they check the timing? Well, no, they didn't check the timing, he tells me. Okay. Can they put it on a draw board? Or better yet, have a buddy stand there and just watch it. He said that his top limb, his top cam was not in time with the bottom cam. Well, there you go. One of the cams is pushing too hard, not meeting the same way, resulting in because they're not working together, resulting in the arrow coming out weird. So I told him, go back to the shop, tell him, hey, put these two cams in time, which is exactly what they did. Bang. No more problems. No knock high, no nothing like that. You're shooting bull holes with it. I said, did they test it at at 10 and 15 feet? He said, that the guy could not figure out why he was asking him that, but yeah, he was still getting a bullet hole. So he tested it at like seven or eight feet or whatever it was. I think they were set up for 10 feet to begin with. And he moved back more and boom, bullet hole still. Cam timing, not a limb going bad or anything like that. Basic stuff like this gets overlooked sometimes. How these guys missed it, I don't know. But the fact that they were telling him to buy another bow makes me think something was wrong. I'm not saying these are unscrupulous guys in the show in the at the shop. Sometimes they don't know any better. So if they just got like someone who's new there or whatever, I didn't get into all that detail. I don't really care. Fact is, it's something that was easy to fix. So I'm glad it worked out for him. Problem solved. Didn't have to buy a new bow. It was all good. Simple tuning change. Our next question comes from Greg H. from Baltimore, Maryland. He writes, Hi, Coach. Quick question for you. My son Kyle and I both have the same draw length, which is 28 inches. Last week, he started seeing his groups get strange and erratic. He shot my bow and didn't have an issue. So we narrowed it down to something on his bow. We both shoot PSE Stingers, and basically they are identical setups because we bought them at the same time, and we have the same draw length. The only difference is the arrow rests. His is a QAD. What did I say about those? Uh, mine is a standard Phantom that came with the bow. Besides that, nothing is different at all. But we do hear some noise when he shoots his bow. Any idea what it could be? So the first thing I said to him, I said, all right, it's a QAD. Yeah. Um I can almost guarantee you I knew what it was right away. That's why I said, here, check the timing on the on the rest. 
And he said that the timing, there was nothing wrong with it. Like the timing, the rest was coming up in the right place. And then suddenly when he drew back the four-fifth time, it didn't come up. It was coming up like sometimes with six inches left of the arrow to go through, sometimes with eight inches. And I'm like, that didn't make any kind of sense. So I asked him, I said, where is it connected to? How is it connected? And it's connected with a li- with the uh, cable clamp. Well, the problem is that cable clamp wasn't on there very tight, and it was sliding. So it would move up a little bit, and all of a sudden the rest timing was off. They weren't clearing, stuff like that. Wasn't getting enough tension on it. So in this case, what I had them do, go to the shop, tell them the timing you want so that it comes up with within the last six inches of the arrow being all the way back. That's where you want it. And tell them not to use the clamp to tie it through the cable. They did that. Erratic groups gone. There's nothing wrong with QAD as a product. But cable-driven rests, okay, tend to have problems depending on the attachment system to the cable. The limb clamps, the cable clamps, should I say, usually don't have a problem. But if your cables are very thin, they can slide very easily. If you have thicker cables, higher higher strand count cables, they may actually damage the cable because they're squeezing so tight that all that force is actually going to make a problem. Now, they've engineered them so they're smooth and all that. They don't do that too much anymore. But still, if the, if the cables themselves are very thin, they could slide. They get easily, you know, easily slide up on there from force. So I just tell people, put it right through the cable. Okay, the shop knows how to do it. They put it in a press. They separate your cable. They put it through there evenly. They serve above it. That works. If you can do it yourself, then you tie it um, a single hitch knot on there, make it really tight, and serve right above it. Stops it from going up. Kind of like half a D loop. You're, you're tying under there and you're serving above it, so that locks it in place. It also allows it to spin and not twist on the cable. And that solved his problem. So that took care of that. And again, it's about timing. So his timing was off because the cable was sliding up and down, that clamp. That sound that he was hearing was the arrow holder on the rest, that V that it's got, was smacking the fletching on the way out. Again, it can result in disastrous impact to your groups, but that's why he had. He said, well, he shot my bow. He didn't have a problem, so we narrowed it down to the bow. They narrowed it down to the bow. I narrowed it down to them to what it was on that bow without it having to see it at all. But once you get more familiar with this, you'll be able to tell, hey, the timing's not right on this rest. Secure the cable. In this case, it was the way the cable was secured that caused them all the, all the headaches. But that'll do it for the listener questions. And this podcast is already running over an hour, so we're just going to get right to the don't be that guy. And it's not going to be a crazy one or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. One of the traditional podcasts I listen to um, with Jason Samkowiak, who's been on my show before, you know, he was just talking about 
how in this day and age people want things very easy. They don't want to work for stuff. They just want things given to them or done easily. And it's that whole instant gratification thing with people, you know, that makes it harder to teach people as far as how to shoot properly. They just want to get it in there or whatever. So this week's Don't Be That Guy goes out to those people that want something done, like tuning, for example, but don't want to put in the work themselves. So don't be that guy who just shows up at a shop, okay, and says, here, here's my bow. Tune it up for me. I'll be back in a couple days or whenever. And then when you go back to pick it up, all of a sudden, you start, you see, oh, this is in tune. He's not doing a thing. Well, you have nobody to blame but yourself. You didn't put in the time to work with them to tune your bow, okay, or doing it yourself. You can't be the guy who goes off and, and says, oh, this is his fault, this is his fault. It's not. The only person, believe it or not, who can tune your bow is you. Why? We all shoot differently. We all have different stances and stuff like that. I can put your bow on a shooting machine and shoot it like a machine, but it's not going to be tuned to you. So you can't be that guy who wants everything easy. Don't be the guy who wants everything easy, just giving it to them. If you want something to work, put in the work. Do it yourself. Or at least, at the very least, go in there and be like, okay, what do I need to do? Because most of the guys say, well, we got to work with you for 10, 15 minutes to make sure that everything's fine. But don't be the guy who gets all angry and upset just because you didn't put in the work to make sure that it tuned out fine. It's unreal, unrealistic expectations that anybody in the shop can tune the bow for you when they are not you. They can help you along the way. They can get the base stuff in there. But don't complain. Don't, don't want things so easy. Don't want things given to you. Work for stuff. So you see, this wasn't a crazy don't be that guy. It was a simple one. It's just a little pet peeve of mine when people start doing that. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Look for a companion video that will show up on YouTube within the next couple days. In the meantime, if you have any questions, feel free to reach us, reach out to us on our website, highpowerarchery.com. I'm all tongue-tied. It's late. All right, now when I'm doing this. Uh, email us, highpowerarchery at gmail.com. Check us out on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash highpowerarchery. Be sure to subscribe there so you're you're notified when there's a new video drop. And we're trying to drop two videos a week. You can check out the High Power Archery Challenge while you're on there. We're p- trying to put new and more informative stuff on there that are companions to to these podcasts. While you're at it, su- subscribe to the podcast. It's where you can find out when a new podcast is released. Please, we're asking if you can possibly find it um, possible, share this podcast with other people you know. So invite other people. Hey, if you never heard about this one before, maybe they'll find something in here that's of, of use to them. Same thing with the YouTube channel. The more we get it out there, I think the better off a lot of people will be because we want to try to spread the simple knowledge 
anybody can tune their stuff. Anybody can become a great shooter. But while we can just keep it to ourselves and all that, we want to get that out to as many people as possible. So that does it. Um, We thank you for listening all this time. It was a long one. And it's never goodbye. It's until we meet again. So stay safe and shoot straight.